Hi, I'm Christy Lee, the creator of Canadian True Crime. Join me for an immersive deep dive into some of the most thought-provoking true crime cases in Canada. Using facts curated from court documents, inquiry reports, and news archives, I carefully unravel and analyze each case, exposing the pitfalls of the criminal justice system that everyone needs to know about. Find Canadian True Crime wherever you listen to podcasts or visit canadiantruecrime.ca. You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. Kimberly Gallup, 17. Cherry Lynn Smith, 18. Chantal Venn, 21. Melissa Nicholson, 17. Between 1986 and when Michael disappears in 1991, four young women are murdered in Victoria. One of the detectives on Michael Dunahee's case mentioned this to me. Their resources are stretched and about to get even thinner as Michael's case draws support from police services in the area. It's also significant for another reason. Beautiful, quiet, safe Victoria seems such an unlikely place for what appears to be the stranger abduction of Michael Dunahee. But the detectives I speak with are emphatic about the heavy caseloads they carry at the time and now. Michael's disappearance is often referred to as a one-off. No other children vanish in the area before or since. And a central question for me is, why is that? None of the detectives I speak with suggest any link between the murdered young women and Michael's case. And I get that. The victimology really is quite different. But then I think of serial murderer Clifford Olson, who just a decade before had preyed on children and young adults here on the West Coast. His youngest victim, a nine-year-old boy. The oldest, an 18-year-old girl. I'm Laura Palmer, and this is Island Crime Season 3, Missing Michael. Missing Michael really is a puzzle. Every time I speak with someone about Michael's case, I get one more small piece of the whole story. A detail. A fresh perspective. A window into a moment in time. And my conversation with Michael's last surviving grandmother is no exception. I'm Kathy Jeffries. Um... I'm married to Crystal's dad, Ken Jeffries. So I've been a grandma to Michael since he was born. One of his many grandmas. I worked for BC Ferries, and I was on the Northern Vessel. Kathy is a young grandmother. She's just 40 when Michael is born. She has fond memories of Crystal's pregnancy. Describing Crystal as cute, how from behind you couldn't tell Crystal was pregnant, but up front, a huge beach ball. When Kathy isn't working on board a ferry as a liverboard vessel chief steward, she loves her time with Michael. I used to go over there and take him, him and I would go walking along the, I don't know, I guess you call it, the Selkirk walkway. He'd go on his bike and he'd tell me, take that pathway up there, Grandma, and and I'll take this one with my bike. Oh, all right. So he would tell me which way to go. <laughs> he was pretty fun. This is something I've heard about Michael. 
that for a little guy, he had a pretty well-developed sense of direction. He wasn't just a, like a lot of kids where they don't really pay attention. He paid attention to everything. He paid attention when you were, when, you know, sometimes he'd stay overnight with us and I'd be taking him home and he'd say, Grandma, when you come to the next road, you can, you turn there to go to take me home. It became a game. Where do I turn now? And he would tell me. And here's something else Kathy shares about Michael. Michael, just four, had been learning how to ski up at Whistler. Crystal and I took him up there to go into skiing in the course at Whistler, the, the Bunny Hills right in the village. And so he just took it, we could watch, and he just took it. He was very good at it. And then that was the, the year before he went missing. Michael makes it up the hill for a day-long lesson one more time with his grandma. He went up there, and he had to be there at 9 o'clock in the morning, and he was back down at 3.30 in the afternoon, and he just loved it. He says, can we do this again? I said, well, maybe we can one of these days. We'll do it again, but the snow is going now, so we have to wait till next year. Four-year-old Michael Dunahy is independent enough to spend the day alone on Whistler Mountain a huge hill. It's the kind of memory that might stand out for a grown man now. In 1991, Kathy works aboard BC Ferries. She takes time away from the ship after Michael's disappearance. When she returns, she is contacted by a fellow ferry worker. I said, you know what? I told the charity that there was a little boy that was saying, I want my mummy." And it was a three o'clock ferry. And she said, he just kept crying and crying. She said, and I phoned security on the Monday morning and when I heard about Michael. And so they looked into it, but they couldn't find anything. And then Kathy shares a piece of information that I hadn't heard before. I think it was pretty well proven when Quantico came up that he had been stopped for quite some time in the co-op area, he knew the person probably, because he'd seen him hanging around. That's what they said anyway. I don't know if that's come out yet. When they came up and they they interviewed the kids in the co-op and, and around, they concluded that there was probably somebody that was around with all these kids because it was a great place to play. I mean, they could ride their bikes because there was sidewalks and there was a playground and the whole bit. And you never had to worry about them going out on the road because they were all in this one area. But they figured that there was somebody that was there and, you know, the kids would say hi to the kids and the kids say hi back after four or five times of scene and that's just normal, right? I've spoken with two detectives who went to Quantico, but this is new to me. I've heard allegations that there were attempted abductions in Vic West, the neighborhood where Michael lived, and also in the area near where Michael goes missing. Here's part of a conversation I had with a source describing his recollection of his sister's attempted abduction back then. This happened in the spring of 89. I was nine or 10 at the time. My sister was five or six. I think she was in kindergarten at the time. And her and her friend, were stopped by a guy in a white van, and they called out their name, both her and my my sister and her friend. She was with her friend, and they were approached, and there was two guys in the vehicle. Their main description 
gave was a guy with salt and pepper, kind of gray and black beard, and and, uh, and he was driving a white van and had toys and was trying to entice them to enter the van. Uh, so um, where where was your sister when this happened? Actually, she was stopped not too far outside of the Pioneer Court on Hereward Street. And do you know, like, what was she doing? Was she coming or going? Her and her friends, I think they just went to the store, which was the Dominion Market just off the road. And they were walking back and got stopped just outside the Pioneer Court by this these two men in a white van. What did she say happened at the time? I don't know if it was reported or she just told the school because they were already at the school. They were warning people about a guy in a white van approaching kids, knowing their name. Like, the kids were warned about it. So the, um, the school was actually warning people? Yes, in the spring of 89. There was multiple accounts of be careful. This is at Vic West Elementary School. And it was warning people to be careful because Michael got taken from Blanchard Elementary, yeah. which is nowhere near his house. Yeah. But it's a very small town. And it just comes back to the calling kids by their name. That there was obviously someone in the neighborhood at that time that knew kids' names and was calling kids by their names, trying to entice them into a white man. So your sister was called by name? Yes. And did the other child, were they called by name as well? I do believe, yes, they both were called by their name. Huh. Someone calls out their names and tries to get them to go into the van. What, uh, did they run away? Where, what happened? They'd already been educated by the school at this point, so they, they did not moved towards the van and they went home and told parents right away. I'm realizing the problem with Michael's case is not that there is too little information, too few leads. It's that there is so much. I've been digging in for the better part of a year, and at times I feel like I'm just scratching the surface. It seems one of Michael's other grandmas carries on something of an investigation of her own. Bruce's mom, Barbara Dennehy, died a few years ago. But in the years after Michael disappears, she works in the child find office alongside Crystal, hoping, praying, and searching for Michael. Here's Michael's grandmother, Kathy, again, describing the lengths Barbara Dennehy went to in the search for her grandson. Sometimes she'd want me to go along the gorge road there's all kinds of apartments along there right and we could sneak in there and we could see if we hear anybody crying we'd go have coffee afterwards or whatever barbara would hear tips and head out to investigate sometimes taking a friend along with her in the middle of the night she was so brokenhearted and we all were but and then i finally i said we're not going to find him here he's long gone This image of Michael's desperate, determined grandma is one that will stay with me. In 1991, Ian Arnold is nine years old. He lives in the house directly across from Blanchard Elementary, a stone's throw from where Michael Dunahy disappears on Sunday, March 24th. My name is Ian Arnold, and uh, I got in touch with you because 
at the time of the Michael Dunahy disappearance, um, my family was living on the corner of Kings and Wark. Uh, and there's a, a big condo building that got put up in the late 90s. Uh, but before that, it was a, a series of houses there. And my family had the one on the corner. Our front door faced out onto Wark Street, uh, facing the playground. And then our front yard was sort of the corner where the holly tree is now. As it happened, we were outside doing yard work and playing in the yard and, and around the area uh, the day that Michael Dunahy disappeared. The first time I speak with Ian, the conversation takes place over Zoom. But later, he meets me at the spot where his house once stood, beside the holly tree his mom used to trim for decorations at Christmas. There is no crime scene in the Dunahy case. No body has ever been found. No forensic evidence exists. But the Blanchard Court's neighborhood is as close to a crime scene as it gets. This is the place where Michael was last seen alive. This is the place Michael Dunahy vanished. I've been here a few times now since I began my work on Michael's story. In the 30 years that have passed, the area has changed. Houses replaced by condos. The old elementary school is no longer in use. The neighborhood itself is now called Quadra Village. And so it truly is helpful to hear it described through the eyes of a child who lived here. Ian attended Blanchard Elementary, and that playground Michael was running towards is a place Ian knows well. It was one of those old, old wood ones uh, with the, the round wooden logs and the, and the wood chips in the bottom of it and, and metal climbing poles and, and things like that. Ian's house is on the corner, the school and the wooden playground across the road. On the other side of the house, another playground. It had an old merry-go-round and swings and a couple of slides. And it was, it was more often to have kids playing on that playground than the school equipment. It wasn't anything super fancy like, like it is now. I think, I think they call it the Work Street Commons now. Today, the Work Street Commons is home to a lovely little park with a modern playground, mosaics, art, a community garden, and benches. And it's interesting to note that even then, the park across the street would have been a big draw for kids. Today, the courts are called Evergreen Terrace. Ian notes the new name is the same as where the Simpsons live. Ian has a great and detailed memory. So I ask him to further describe the neighborhood. The whole place, I mean, you, you could sort of broadly say... 1970s construction boom. He tells me the apartments were 70s era. Lots of brown and beige. The the houses, you know, the, the one that I lived in and the ones that, that were were next to us, the exterior a lot of the exteriors were uh, painted sort of dull colors if they if they were painted. Um, and then the ones that weren't had it was it yeah, it's like chipped quartz and, and mineral stuff, all, all very sort of small shards and fragments, like sort of stuccoed into the wall exterior to give it this sort of funny textured appearance. I remember the houses next to us were not not particularly well taken care of. So where, where the, the 
community center is now, it used to be about half its size. And the downstairs area was where a lot of the, the before and after school care took place. There was not a lot of traffic. Uh, there was there was very little traffic. Uh, kid, you know, it, it was one of those situations where, where kids would play in and along Kings Road and along Dowler Place. You know, ride skateboards or bikes and and uh, in in the summer there like we actually did play street hockey there sometime. Two playgrounds, an elementary school, aftercare at a community center, lots of children around. If someone wants to take a child, it would seem the neighborhood was an ideal spot. And there's more. It 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 was regarded as a rough neighborhood uh, because of the courts. Blanchard Courts was the largest of the BC housing projects in Victoria. But what that meant was that you had a huge congregation of poor people. Uh, And so it was widely expected that there was a lot of drug use, that there was a lot of alcohol abuse. There was a lot of abuse happening. Ian recalls that some of his friends were abused and that social services was called. But that is not what stands out for him as he looks back on the community where he grew up. There was a wide, wide array of different types of people living in that complex. Uh, I had a friend uh, and he and his family were refugees. refugees from Vietnam. Uh, I had another friend, he had come from Nicaragua, him and his family. There were lots of white families. There were some native families. There were, there was one guy whose family came from Ethiopia. It was a very, very diverse group of people. The courts was not just some, some drug haven or, or, or some gangland territory. It was a community of people who were struggling to get by and who relied and helped each other. And there would be summer barbecues. Um, kids would play on the, the playgrounds together. You, you got to know your neighbors and you all worked together because you all knew how tough things were. Ian is artfully painting a portrait of the place and the era where Michael Dunhee vanished. I can almost see the stucco houses, the shoddy brown low-rises, the diverse group of kids running around. And it is in this place on Sunday, March 24th, that young Ian and his family play a small role in the Dunahy case. I was outside with, with my family. Mom and my dad were sort of doing yard work and tidying up the place and mowing the lawn and things like that. Uh, while my brother and sister sort of played around. I had a new bike uh, that I had gotten just a couple of months before. And so I was riding around uh, and enjoying the the freedom of that. And I was sort of running around the neighborhood and and things like that. And I remember we had a fairly clear view of of the field and stuff. There was a lot of adults over on the the field, sort of the section that was across from the, the playground park on Work Street Commons. Um, and they were all sort of picnicking there and they had some music and they were playing frisbee and doing things like that. And there was kids running around as well. And some point in the afternoon, 
The, the adults all kind of got up abruptly and started running around everywhere. And I remember there was a very distressed woman and a man who came over to us because we had been outside all afternoon. And I had just sort of ridden up with my bike because I had just finished from my, my most recent circuit. And the, the woman was asking if we had seen a little boy uh, and gave a sort of description of him, uh, short, blonde, and mum and dad, you know, looked really worried uh, and then said, no, we, we haven't seen him. And me, wanting to help, said, well, I'll, I'll go ride my bike around and see if I can find him. And so I sort of started riding my bike around the area, calling out for Michael, because that was the name that I had been, been given for him. Ian recalls riding around the neighborhood on his new bike, searching for a little boy he has never met, calling out for Michael. When he returns to his yard, more people have gathered and the police have arrived. I recall Bruce and Crystal telling me about seeing the man out mowing his lawn and asking to use the phone to call the police. That man is Ian's father. Remember, it's 1991. Most people don't have cell phones yet. I can recall as a kid, we all knew to avoid a certain man on a nearby street. He was rumored to have pornography in his garage and would occasionally try to entice us to come talk with him in there. I ask Ian if there was anyone like that, anyone that stands out in his childhood memories. There's no person that stands out. But what I do recall, the the house immediately next to ours uh, along King's Road, so sort of facing the school, didn't have anybody living in there for a long time. And I, 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 I want to say I don't actually remember anybody living in it. The rumor and the myths going around the school was that the house was haunted. And I do remember some of the kids talking about how maybe Michael went in the house and disappeared. You know, my friends and I, we would like periodically after school, like walk up to the steps and like push the door open and just peer inside and dare each other to, to go in the house. And, you know, one of us would go like two feet into the house and be like, oh, I did it. And then like, run back out. And, and, and so it was, it was totally possible to get in there. But you could, you could get over the, the fence and, and into the backyard uh, from my backyard. And so sometimes my friends and I would hop over just to be daring and then climb back. The haunted house of Ian's childhood and the other houses will soon be gone, bought up by a developer and replaced by condos. But on that day in 1991, Ian's house and the surrounding neighborhood is ground zero for the search for Michael Dennehy and the investigation that is about to begin. Hi, I'm Christy Lee, the creator of Canadian True Crime. Join me for an immersive deep dive into some of the most thought-provoking true crime cases in Canada. Using facts curated from court documents, inquiry reports, and news archives, I carefully unravel and analyze each case, exposing the pitfalls of the criminal justice system that everyone needs to know about. Find Canadian True Crime wherever you listen to podcasts or visit canadiantruecrime.ca. Hi. 
Hundreds of police officers on the island and beyond play a role in investigating the Dunahee case over the past three decades. I've been retired for a very long time. I'm just Don. And I was a detective sergeant with Victoria Police at the time of uh, Michael's disappearance. Retired Detective Sergeant Don Bland is one of them. I've been for quite some time in playing clothes in a major crime section. I've previously spent uh, doing other things such as, uh, you know, uniform patrol, drugs, criminal intelligence, surveillance, etc. But my job at that time was uh, investigating major crime. In fact, Don Bland is one of a handful of detectives to lead the investigation. Well, I assumed uh, as part of the lead investigative team. So uh, we had a team that was uh, assigned to investigate as lead investigators, and I was one of those. Uh, So that job basically is coordinating the efforts, uh, not the search particularly, but uh, any any information that comes in, anything that needs to be investigated, uh, we either do it or we delegate it to be done. And then we gather all the information and decide what further investigative steps are necessary. As the time goes on, it's, it's more and more worrisome. I've investigated a lot of missing people and missing, you know, a few missing children, but uh, they're usually found within you know, uh, hours at most. And as the hours went by, it was more and more concerning because the, uh, if he's not found, I mean, the consequences could be, could be bad. Don's an experienced investigator by this time in his career. He knows how important the early hours and days of the investigation will be to its outcome. In a normal investigation, you either uh, have a crime scene or you have, a, in the case of some homicides, a, a, a dump site, something to work with, something that your forensic team can try and get information and, and get samples or whatever from. Uh, there was none of that. All it was, it was an area where he was last seen. Uh, that produced nothing. And uh, as time went on, it was quite clear that there was no witnesses to uh, his actual disappearance. He was only seen in the playground, and then he was gone. Stranger abductions are rare. And so one of the first possibilities Don Bland and his team need to consider is whether Michael was ever at the park at all. Well, it was so so unreal that he could disappear with that many people around without being seen or having somebody at least, you know, uh, an independent observation of him. So clearly we wanted to talk to everybody that had contact with him. And, you know, a question in our mind was, uh, did he actually make it to the park? I mean, it's a question we had to ask ourselves because the only evidence that he did was Crystal and Bruce. And of course, the passenger in their car and their infant daughter was not you know, old enough to bear witness. But at the end of the day, he made it there and he was there and now he's gone. Reminder, that passenger in the car is Donna Fetterly, the fellow football player who Bruce and Crystal and the children pick up on the way to the game. Bruce tells me Donna sits in the back with the two kids. Donna is now deceased. She died of cancer. 
Doug Fetterly was Donna's husband. I spoke with him to ask what he recalls of that day. Doug also played football. And on that particular day, he has a game at another field. That's why the Dunahees pick up Donna. He tells me it was not unusual for Donna to catch a lift with the Dunahees. I asked the Victoria police if I can see Donna Fetterly's statement, but that request is denied. I'm told it could impact the integrity of the investigation. Today, there would likely be surveillance video in the area. But back then, there's very little of that around. you got to realize that, that in the early 90s, technology wasn't as what it is today. Uh, really, surveillance video was, wasn't very prevalent, and what there was was really poor quality. But there was absolutely nothing around that area uh, that had camera on it. The only people using cameras at those times were like banks and financial institutions. And so, Don begins his investigation with a focus on those closest to Michael. It's a pretty standard uh, thing in uh, investigations that you start at the nucleus of that person's life, uh, the persons that are closest to them. And and, uh, as you eliminate those people, you work your way out to the point where, you know, just the people with the slightest contact with them are, are looked at and and then you get to the point where you just run out of people sometimes. The most difficult investigation for uh, police are stranger uh, murders, basically, because the the individuals come together, there's a violent reaction action, and they part, and then there's, there's no background to investigate, but you know, this is a long way of getting around to telling you that uh, we always do look at the, the closest people, mother, father, husband, wife. I mean, it's not that we didn't look at people and we didn't feel that they were warranted closer looks sometimes, but in the fullness of the time, there was just no evidence to point to anybody. In those early hours and days, police looked carefully at Michael's family, neighbours and friends. But the biggest lead early on is a brown van. By Tuesday, March 26, 1991, police are appealing for information based on evidence provided by a 10-year-old girl. The little girl tells police she saw a boy resembling Michael get into a van parked in an alley near the school. The van is described as an older model brown van with tinted rear windows. She tells the police there was a bulldog inside and a large plastic bag. Here is Don Bland on the child witness and the brown van. The only child that uh, was interviewed in relation to it was one that provided, which sounded like an eyewitness report uh, in the first instance of uh, Michael being taken away in a brown van. That was thoroughly looked at, thoroughly investigated. The school-aged child was interviewed numerous times at the end, uh, we determined that the, there's no evidence whatsoever that uh, credible evidence that it was involved. But, you know, the brown band's going to come up. I know you're going to hear about it a lot. And the truth is, it's, there is no evidence that there was a brown band involved in any way. Uh, and we were stuck with uh, the decision at the time is 
we we're taking this with a grain of salt, but do we keep it to ourselves or do we put the, the description out there in hopes that somebody might see it? And in the early days, uh, that's important to be able to you know, get whatever information you can about any suspect vehicle. So the decision was made to put that out, that we're looking for a brown van in connection with the disappearance. But uh, long after we discounted it, we're still getting lots of reports on brown vans. The 10-year-old girl who came forward at the time has never been publicly identified. The current investigators don't put much stock in the tip. In those early days, there is also a sketch of a man released to the public. A witness comes forward to say a man was hanging around the area that day who looked suspicious. He is in his late 30s to early 40s with a chubby build, large nose, big ears, white to grayish hair, thin on top, between 5'4 and 5'7. You've already heard about the hypnosis used to try and pull memories from those who were at the field that afternoon. The police really are willing to try anything, and they take another unusual step. On Sunday, April 28th, just over a month after Michael's disappearance, the police stage a reenactment. We tried to reconstruct the scene as accurately as we could. People came back with their cars and parked exactly where they were parked. And then uh, we went to each person and asked them, you know, what's different now than was that on the day of the disappearance? Is there anybody who was here that isn't here now? Well, I think it was a worthwhile exercise, but it didn't really bear any fruit in that it uh, pointed to any individual that needed any more serious follow-up. Uh, we, I seem to remember, we determined that there was a car or two, uh, I think, missing, but uh, we couldn't find who that was, and there was no help from the people that were there. They just thought, well, I think it was a car there, but I don't know what it looked like, and I don't know who was driving it. And, I've watched old footage of this reenactment. You can see the police going from car to car, asking people to recall who was parked where. And you can see the Dunahees in their little red Datsun. Only this time, no Michael in the back seat. In episode two, John Ducker talks about the overwhelming number of tips and paper the file is generating. Here's Don Bland biggest thing Victoria PD's ever had before or since. Very early on, we knew that this was going to generate a lot of tips. As we, we call them tips. It's, it was a tip system. And again, you got to appreciate that uh, during this time, uh, the, no, no, the notion of uh, major crime management uh, files was not what it is today. Uh, there was, there was computers were around, but they weren't really utilized for major crime management. What we had was a hard copy system called a tip system. It's like a business form. Uh, tip comes in, the, the call taker, whoever it may be, fills out all the information with the person's name and who reported, et cetera, et cetera. And then it's like made into copies, copy here, copy there. Copy goes to the lead investigative team. The investigative team puts it out to uh, uh, an investigator to follow up on it. 
decision is made as a group as to whether to conclude it as a tip, that it's you know not gonna it's not gonna be of any evidentiary value or it has no value, or to assign it for further follow-up. And we did that thousands of times. There was a room full of filing filing cabinets and full of hard copy reports. They're still around today as far as I know. Victoria Police have never handled a case like this before, and so they welcome the help of outside police agencies. Policing on the South Island then, and now, is complicated. There are multiple different police forces in the region. In 1991, there were five different municipal police forces, while other nearby municipalities are under contract to the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. Outside agencies throughout Greater Victoria supplied personnel to follow up on tips, and uh, that was a huge help to us because we were we were overwhelmed. We didn't have the, the staff to, to to do that, and so we worked with all the municipal and RCP who followed up on tips for us and did whatever we uh, needed them to do. There's no doubt Victoria Police needed the help. The all hands on deck were welcome. But I asked Don if having multiple forces involved caused confusion or complications in managing the case. This policing system we got in the lower Vancouver Island and the mainland is crazy. And does it affect investigations? You betcha, every day it does. Uh, that we have different police departments working independently from each other. But I got to think that this particular case, we pulled in resources from all the police departments, so no one was acting sort of independently. The Victoria was the lead agency, but the other departments actually supplied personnel and, and support and worked with us directly. So I, I don't think that any kind of lack of communication or uh, cooperation had any kind of detrimental effect on the Dunahee investigation although it probably does on a daily basis for other things. Don Bland doesn't believe the fractured policing system was a detriment to the investigation. But in my time looking at the case, some have quietly raised questions about whether lack of coordination hampered the investigation in any way. Still, you have to admire the Victoria Police Force's willingness to admit they needed help, and for looking beyond the island for assistance. Here's Don Bland describing the early involvement of the FBI. Uh, at some point through the process, uh, it was discussed about the, I think they used to call it the Behavioral Science Unit, uh, the FBI, made famous by Silence of the Lambs, Jody Foster, and I contacted the uh, FBI Quantico, Virginia, and just ran the circumstances of the case by them. And uh, they thought they might be of some help to create a profile. Uh, now, this whole thing is pretty controversial now, and it was then, is whether that profile is actually accurate or how much they can actually uh, tell you about somebody, the, uh, 
Malcolm Gladwell, I think, called it a parlor trick. The detractors would say that it's just common sense. But anyway, having said all that, uh, we went down there. Uh, our team went to Quantico and, and met with the FBI uh, profiling team. John Decker is the detective I introduced you to in the last episode. In April, he is also among the nine Victoria police detectives who board a province of British Columbia airplane and head to Quantico, Virginia to meet with the FBI. With them, two fresh salmon packed in ice as a gift to their FBI hosts. We, uh, we flew, flew down to Quantico and uh, there was, um, they, um, they train officers in the behavioral profiling from all over the world. So we had a, a number of sessions and sort of a group group think on uh, what was going going on in a behavioral sense around this abduction. And, uh, you know, we gave them all the evidence we could. And we had a long discussion about, uh, you know, what type of person may be involved and what to look for. The problem there is uh, with you know behavioral evidence is that, that there's there was no physical evidence, uh, no crime scene per se to uh, lay on them from which you can derive uh, behavioral traits. So that was a bit of a stumbling block. But nevertheless, when we uh, came back from that, the information was encapsulated on uh, the type of the type of person we would be looking for. So that was a bit of a shift in the investigation uh, that, that I could understand that before we were just looking at raw tips that, uh, you know, Joe Dokes was here at this time and he was acting suspiciously. After the visit to Quantico, we put out information about the type of person we were looking at. And that was a quite an interesting change in the, in the scope of the investigation because when we described a personality type that was uh, potentially involved in this, then we got a lot more tips and a lot more interesting tips about people that other people knew in the community. And uh, there was a lot of very interesting, potentially you know, viable people in, in that iteration of the investigation. Looking back at old TV news footage, It really is mind-blowing. The government providing a plane to jet nine detectives across the country from the west coast of Canada to the east coast of the United States. By then, the detectives have been working round the clock on the Dunahee file. They welcome a break from the intense scrutiny and the opportunity to hear a fresh perspective. First, you know, some investigators from Victoria to fly halfway or all the way across the continent to, to, to follow up on a possible lead was, yeah, that was unprecedented for sure. But, uh, you know, this was a very, very serious uh, event and uh, we were doing everything that was at our disposal to do. I mean, uh, we would do anything. I mean, if it meant going to the other side of the world, we would have done that. Bland mentions the movie Silence of the Lambs, in which FBI profiler in training Clarice Starling famously works with Hannibal Lecter to catch a serial killer. That movie is released in February 1991. 
and I wondered to what extent the hype around the film plays any role in the decision to work with profilers on Michael's case. In any event, Don Bland isn't convinced the profile proved helpful. They gave an age that would probably be uh, an offender, and I can't remember the age, but it was you know fairly young, maybe early 20s or whatever, that he was a... Uh, Anyway, there was certain personality aspects, but if if you said to anybody on the street, you know, somebody abducted this kid and he's been missing for whatever long, about a month, what do you kind of person do you think that would be? You'd say, well, he's probably young and he's he's got a criminal record and a very not a very nice person, probably doesn't have a full time job. But that, I mean, that's what I think. That's what they said. I think what they come up with their process is based on uh, statistical data interviews of uh, uh, serial offenders uh, from the past. So they sort of put a composite together of people who have done what their personality traits are, and then they apply it to the circumstances of the current case. And unfortunately, the circumstances of the current case were all we knew is what I said, like the environment, the traffic, and the access was by an alley and a small street. They thought that the guy would have to have had uh, local knowledge, which, you know, I, I kind of see that. I agree with that. I mean, the chances of some abductor just happening to be there, uh, I mean, it's possible, but it's more likely that the person was actually uh, more uh, sort of local or, or knew the area. I would think that's reasonable to assume. The question as to whether or not Michael was taken by someone from the community or who knew the island well is one at the heart of their investigation. I think of the fictional Hannibal Lecter's famous quote about the nature of the killer he is hunting. How do we begin to covet? Do we seek things out to covet? No, we begin by coveting what we see every day. The police are advised there are four main reasons a child is abducted. Ransom, a substitution child, the sale of a child to others, or pedophilia. Obviously, we rounded up the information and addresses and and, uh, criminal records of uh, every sex offender we could find uh, on the lower mainland and Vancouver Island, and every one of them was looked at and accounted for. If it was at all possible, some of them were, you know, some of them had died, some of them disappeared, some of them were in jail, but uh, they were all uh, looked at, and uh, if they were followed up, they needed to be followed up, they were followed up. But here again, there's nothing that came out of that. The notoriety of Michael's story draws tips about all kinds of possible offenders. We got a lot of stuff based on past cases, like What's his name? Gates, who's dressed up like a clown. Um, we got tons of uh, tips on clowns. Like every clown that came into town, some would phone up and said, this is the guy. It was based on you know past cases. Don Bland is, of course, referring to Chicago's killer clown, John Wayne Gacy, who had been convicted of 33 murders more than a decade before Michael disappears. Michael's story is spreading quickly, The story is featured on America's Most Wanted, and tips pour in from around the globe. 
well, we had Scotland Yard. Uh, we had various uh, national police forces all over the world that were following up on leads for us. The, the tips got so huge and so worldwide that uh, we were getting tips from Australia, uh, lots from uh, New York uh, State, uh, the UK, uh, about sightings. And you say to yourself, okay, well, if this guy or guy or girl or whoever took this kid to raise him and nurture him as, a, as a, somebody of their own, which is one case scenario. Uh, he, could have, he or she could have taken him anywhere they could. The FBI profile and Don's own instinct tell him it is more likely that an abductor would be local or at least familiar with the island. The focus begins where Michael was last seen. I mean, Blanchard Courts was, was the most prestigious address in town. Uh, it was an interesting mix of people. And yes, there was a lot of drugs there. There was a lot of crime. Uh, over the years previous, there had been some gang activity there. But I'd be hard-pressed to find any kind of nexus between the abduction of a small boy and the use of drugs. I mean, or, you know, armed robbery or any other crime. They're not the same. So somebody who is, has a propensity to rob banks or uh, to traffic in drugs is not necessarily a prime suspect for stealing a little boy. You know what I mean? I think about Ian's impression of his childhood neighborhood. Police scour the community for signs of Michael and take a hard look at anyone who isn't cooperating. Well, in my experience, I don't think I've ever seen a search like the one that was done of the surrounding mile or so of the site. It's almost like it was the War Measures Act. We sent people out to search every house, knock on every door, and request to search the house. You know, say, we don't care if you got a dope plant in here, we don't care if you got drug paraphernalia, we're looking for a missing kid and we want to search your house. Probably not totally legal in the light of today, but when people wouldn't let our people in to search, the uh, investigative went to find out why. So they interviewed the people. And, I mean, some people said they, they don't have to be searching. You're right, they don't. But we're looking for a kid. It went everywhere anybody could get at. I mean, it was even like under the, the storm catchment drains, uh, everywhere. And uh, again, nothing. While police are out searching for Michael, they are also setting traps hoping a person who could be responsible for taking Michael will turn up to help in the search. You know, there's some investigative techniques that I don't know if the, the current police doing the job would be wanting me to give out, you know, but we tried a lot of things you know, in terms of, you know, trying to flush uh, this person out. And uh, because often, statistically, again, uh, the the person that's responsible for a crime like this will often get themselves involved in the investigation. They'll volunteer as a, a search member, or they'll come to public meetings, to information meetings put on by the police. So we utilize that knowledge of that type of behavior to try and force them out into the open. There again, I don't know if I'm telling tales at a school, but it's, I mean, it's part of an investigation like this where the people who volunteer to come out and they're all well-intentioned and, and, and I feel bad about treating them that way, but you're all looked at. You're all 
background and we want to know what's uh, motivating you and uh, whether you actually might be involved in the crime or you just being a good citizen. Eventually, the search expands beyond the community, at times even guided by tips from unconventional sources. Well, I've followed up on several tips that I sort of had skepticism about. Uh, there was like psychics. There was one in uh, Mount Doug Park. We went and dug an area up there. Um, the psychics, would, they were phoning from all over the world saying, He's, uh, he's in an area with a lot of trees and surrounded by water. Dragged a lake up island here based on a psychic. I don't hold any confidence in anything a psychic might say myself, but you know, that's just an example of what the lengths we went to to investigate the tips. So even if you don't think, I think this is absolute BS, you still follow up on it just, just in case. I mean, what's motivating the person to phone? Maybe they're a suspect, right? I've explored a number of missing person cases where family bemoan the lack of resources and public attention on their loved one's case. The energy, creativity, and commitment that go into trying to crack Michael's case stands in stark contrast to some of the earlier cases I've explored. We actually contacted the uh, U.S. Space Authority because uh, they had a uh, surveillance satellite in orbit. And we actually tried to get photographs of the crime scene from that satellite. But, oh, my uh, God. That is unbelievable. Really? Yeah. But there again, that was a great idea. And had the satellite been in the right spot at the right time, it, it could have been very useful. But unfortunately, it wasn't. So we had it, we looked into it, where was it? Was it in a position to take pictures of Blanchard Court? And at some point it would have been, but not during the time. And I can't think of anything now in, in uh, reflection on, you know, could have we done something more or could have we maybe taken a different investigative avenue? And I don't think we could. I think we did everything we possibly could. Don Bland and his colleagues pushed the boundaries of where technology could take them back in 1991. He wishes some of those resources available now were around back then. Pinging cell phones and cell phone sites, and that was unknown back then. And, uh, I mean, there's so many more resources now available to investigators. Who knows if it would have come to a better conclusion had there been more of that. But, we used everything that was available to us at the time. All those police hours tracking down tips, the many creative avenues cost money. But when it comes to working Michael's case, resources are not a problem. The, the resources and the expense, and, you know, all things that went into this investigation was just astronomical. I've seen in certain cases where an investigation starts getting uncomfortably expensive and time-consuming, and there are some administrators who will say, could you cut back on this or cut back on that? There was every resource was available to us as an investigative team, and never did anybody say, you know, you've got to pull back or you can't do any more overtime or, you know, this resource isn't available to you because it's too expensive. No, not once, never. 
And yet, despite all of that, Don Bland doesn't feel like he got close to nailing a viable suspect. I, I, I've got not a lot, but I got a, a, a few cases that you know are are unresolved, and I know exactly the names of the people that I dealt with and the people that I think did it, sort of thing. And I, you never forget them. But I got nobody on this case like that. Somebody came up with a viable explanation of an extra extraterrestrial kidnapping. I mean. It has all the hallmarks of that. In the years that follow, the investigation will be looked at with fresh eyes. In the episode ahead, I'll introduce you to retired detective Al Cochran. He takes on an exhaustive review of the file, and he comes to believe the problem is not too few suspects, it's too many. Don Bland tells me he isn't haunted by Michael's case. But he is annoyed. And I'd really like to know what happened uh, because it's really frustrating. As I've said before, there's not many of the cases I was involved in where I didn't have some sort of sufficient conclusion to them. And it bugs me uh, sometimes that I don't know what happened. And it bugs me that Crystal and Bruce don't get to know what happened. As for what it will take to finally solve Michael's case... People in the investigative world are always saying somebody knows something and it just takes that one person to, to give that little tiny piece of information, um, which in the vast majority of cases is true. I'm not thoroughly convinced that there is anybody out there that knows exactly what happened other than the person that's responsible. It's a pretty solitary type of crime. Uh, it's not something you brag about. And it's not something you involve other people in. So, but if that person's out there that has just the slightest thing in their mind that they know somebody that might have done it, or might have had something to do with it, I mean, it'd be nice if they would step forward. It'd be nice if somebody had a fit of conscience and wrote a letter and said, you know, it was me, come and get me. But I don't hold up much hope for that. It's been 30 years since Ian Arnold was a little kid riding around on his new bike looking for Michael. Ian now views Michael's disappearance as a piece of his personal history and of the history of the neighborhood itself. I ended up getting selected as a group of five kids uh, to present and help put in uh, the Michael Dunahee Memorial Tree. There was a, a little sort of evergreen tree that got planted there for him, along with a, a blue stand and a, and a plaque. The five of us that were sort of chosen to, to represent that, you know, we all put in a, a shovel and, and dug out part of the hole that the tree went into. And then that was just sort of that. Years later, Ian, now a grown man, with children of his own, takes his children to see the Tree of Hope he helped plant for Michael. And I remember walking over to the blue plaque and looking in, and the, the little paper piece explaining what the tree was had been totally weatherborn, and you couldn't really tell what was there anymore. 
And so I made a point of, of explaining to my kids that, you know, as they sort of got old enough to, to understand, I said, you know, this, this tree is here to commemorate a little boy who went missing in this area. And this is what happened, and we still don't know what happened to him. Ahead in Episode 4, The Investigation Through a New Lens. But first, a word from one of Michael's heroes. Michael Dunahy loved the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Back when Michael was a little guy, loving the magic of the turtles, I had the privilege of being the voice of Michelangelo. I'm Townsend Coleman, a voice actor, and one of the many people who want answers in Michael's case. The turtles were crime fighters who believed in justice. If you have any information about Michael, please head to michaeldunahy.ca and click on the Report a Tip button. I'm Laura Palmer, and you're listening to Missing Michael, Island Crime, Season 3. In 2007, TV network CBS dropped 40 kids in the middle of the New Mexico desert as part of a brand new reality show. These kids would have to build their own society from scratch. And if this sounds like Lord of the Flies to you, well, it was meant to. We were on this mission together. We were going to prove to the world that we could make a better society than adults could. I'm Josh Gwynn, and I want to know what this wild TV experiment was really about. Split Screen, Kid Nation, a six-part podcast from CBC. Available now.